Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast that covers magic, houseplants, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And we're your co-hosts. And today, we are going to cover the Lunar New Year and Guanyin. Yeah, and on that theme, I'm going to be talking about Crassula Ovada, or Jade. Love that. Um, But before we get into my segment, I did have another fun opening question. Uh, and that is, Shannon, uh, do you remember the Super Buffet in Granbury, Texas? I believe we went there many times together with Nana. Yeah, of course I do. It was a fucking buffet. It was super. And it really was super. Um, So what what is your go to Chinese takeout order? Oh, yeah. If I'm going to get Chinese takeout, I'm definitely doing a hot and sour soup. I'm doing egg rolls of some sort and crab rangoon. I am like a sucker for crab rangoon. Like I will, I have gone through like so many different takeout places trying to find one that has good crab rangoon. Uh, And I'm going to, I'm going to second that with the crab rangoon. That's always what I get for starters, but I'm, I'm a huge Kung Pao chicken stand. Oh yeah. It's like like spicy. I got the crunchy nuts. It's delicious. (laughs) Crunchy nuts. (laughs) Crunchy nuts. Um, But yeah, Granberry definitely had some interesting Asian restaurants. Do you remember the old Dairy Queen that got turned into the restaurant where half of it was a donut shop and half of it was a sushi place? Oh, yeah. Shochiku. Yeah. Sushi donuts is what it was commonly known as. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, what the fuck were we eating in Granberry? From the sushi place, like, because for people that don't know, Granberry is like an hour outside of Fort Worth, like not even close to Dallas. And it's nowhere near the like Gulf even. So it's right. like, uh, I just like, I don't want to know, but I it want to know. It was good though. I remember, it, I remember it was good. I mean, it to was. this day, I mean, I, obviously it was maybe the first time I had ever even had sushi, but it was good. I feel like, I feel like the way... That you get away with it in like a landlocked small town sushi restaurant is you just do a lot of like smoked salmon and like crab salad rolls. Well, and I know eel was I because that's when I found out and I still I still love eel like I'm a big right. fan of eel and they had it there. And it's like, I guess all of the sushis that you can cook are yeah, really like easy sushi. to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause you can you can do that with um minimal minimal amounts of exposure to foodborne pathogens so we, and we love that we love that and i and i and i love a little love a little smoked salmon roll like a philly roll oh my god yes but i just i want to go on the record and say that we here at wands and fronds don't stand foodborne illness no 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 <laughs> but uh, so I, I i wanted to do that icebreaker question because i feel like a lot of people, especially people like us that come from small towns, you know, we're we're kind of white bread people. Like, yeah, I definitely come from a Wonder Bread family. So, y- yeah, you don't choose where you're born. I mean, um, same. <laughs> so, you know, it's a lot of times that's like our first introduction to maybe even any culture outside of our little small towns culture. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about before kind of going into my segment is that uh, we really want to be respectful of the cross-cultural aspect of this episode um and just say that like what you you know your little chinese zodiac on the back of your takeout menu or the little shrine that they sometimes have by the cash register you know like you kind of wonder about that and it's really sort of a one-dimensional way of seeing that culture and a lot of people just never really think about it outside of that um 
But there's it's it's a very ancient and three dimensional thing that's if anything even more ancient and complex than what Western pagans are looking into for their inspiration. So uh, we just want to, we just want to come into this with with respect. Uh, but also, I, I thought that was fun because I feel like that's where you, that's the first time you see like stuff for for Lunar New Year, and that's usually the first time you see any depictions of Guan Yin, who we'll be talking about later. And um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a good note because like we we definitely have done as much research as we can. But we're also I think there's that sort of inherent Western bias that we're trapped in because it's also like we can only read things in English. And so mm -hmm. we I know are doing our best. And so if anybody listening like wants to send us any notes or has any corrections on anything we go over, like definitely please do. We really want to learn. And I think that especially in the US, there's this really huge anti-Chinese bias, like even now. And that oh, has espe really... Especially with Donald Trump being yeah. president very recently. Yeah. And it has uh... like, it's super hindered any sort of cultural exchange because then they, it's like just like the same shit we do to Russia where it's like, it all gets boiled down to the quote unquote, like basically like bond villain style leadership is yeah, how they're it's often like, portrayed. It's like borscht and Russian nesting dolls and uh, St. Petersburg, you know? Yeah. Like. And then and from China, it's like Kung Pao chicken, the color red and what we usually call quote unquote Chinese new year. So to start off my topic this week, I actually have a little mini QWP, which is simply this. It is the Lunar New Year, not the Chinese New Year. And uh, over a billion people in East Asia and around the world in immigrant communities celebrate this holiday, including, but not limited to, Koreans, Vietnamese people, Japanese people, people from Singapore, People from Taiwan, which is Chinese people as well. Uh, Mongolia. Oh, but that the, from Taiwan, that's a very complicated thing. So we're not going to yes. make any commentary on the Taiwan issue. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so the Koreans, Vietnamese and Japanese communities are also celebrants of the Lunar New Year. And so it really just behooves everyone involved to be respectful of that and just say Lunar New Year. Uh, unless you want to come across as an uncultured American swine, in which case, keep on keeping on. Uh, you and Uncle Gaius can uh, chill in the backwoods <laughs> somewhere together. You can, like, stop the steal. Yeah, yeah, you can stop the steal together. <laughs> and um, I think it's, like, it is important to make that note because, you know, I think especially, again, like, because we can only speak from a Western perspective, it's, like, Every Asian person is not Chinese. There's yes. a lot of diversity in Asia that I think very much gets whitewashed uh, real hardcore. So we don't want to be part of the problem. And I think, you know, the witchcraft community is such a melting pot. And I think it's like, it's important, like we've said before, like we have to really like be aware of the cultures when we're like getting inspiration from them. Yes. And Especially here, there's like such a big disconnect, I feel like, between the amount of like historical information and cultural information we have basically on the entire Eastern, quote unquote, yeah, yeah, yeah. part of the Eastern, world. Eastern religions, which it is literally bigger landmass, bigger populations, more diverse culture than Europe. Yeah. But and it's so, also like I mean, so you, fucking if, funny that we call it the East. I just my weird little side note here is like, wow, how Eurocentric. 
that we all call it the east because i'm like hey it's a globe it's round but that's that's a soapbox for a different day (laughs) right and uh yeah so my personal background with this holiday comes from working at a tea shop for seven years and having lots of customers who were stocking up for their celebrations and personally kind of seeing it as the kickoff to the spring season because it basically would go and uh, just a reminder for everyone that I do live in Austin, uh, it would go Lunar New Year, South by Southwest, tea season, which is when all of the fresh tea would come in. And that was really our big push before things got slow for the summer. So I've been very aware of the Lunar New Year for quite some time now. And yeah. this year... Oh, and go I was just going to say, the, the first time that I ever really started learning more about the Lunar New Year is actually when I was an undergrad, um, a woman that I worked with at the College of Liberal Arts was, uh, she was Chinese American, and she taught a lot of us about it because she brought everybody like the really pretty red envelopes with the $2 mm. bills in them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah. We'll, we'll actually be we talking about that tradition a little bit later on. Um, and so this year, the Lunar New Year is on February 12th, which just so happens to be the day that this episode is coming out. Uh, But owing to its basis on the cycles of the moon, it can change by up to a couple of weeks in either direction. So you could have it at the end of February, you could have it at the end of January. Um, And so this is actually also done in the Jewish lunar solar calendar as well, because the lunar year is about 11 days shorter than the solar year. So they add some time to it to make it line up better. Um, it's almost like like the leap day situation because yeah. they 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 want it to start on the new moon. Yeah, because we I think it's it's important to remember too how kind of new the Gregorian calendar is. Like that didn't start until I think like the 1580s. Right. So when you think about like Human history, the Gregorian calendar and the way that we think of the calendar year now is relatively recent. Yes. And uh, the Lunar New Year uh, does start on the first new moon of the, the lunar cycle and ends on the last full moon. And so the time in between is when they get prepared. There's a whole system of like preparation that's like part of the holiday itself. Um, but it also. One thing that most people will be familiar with is uh, the start of the new Chinese Zodiac year. And so this year, we are entering the year of the ox. And uh, as a side note, when I was looking this up, uh, all of us goat slash sheep slash ram 1991 babies, which me and Shannon both are, uh, who are also experiencing our Saturn return right now, are uh, not expected to have a very good year this year, uh, especially in the areas of finance and career so just a a little update on your uh your lunar zodiac for the year yeah and there's there is a lot of debate around this whole issue of whether we're goat sheep or rams because it's it has to do with like the the writing that they use in chinese um it it could mean any of them but a lot of people think it's most likely a goat Um, Because the Chinese Zodiac was actually invented by the Han people and they raised goats pretty wild, like pretty widely, and they didn't really raise sheep Um, on on a very other like sort of artsy side note. If anybody is interested in Ai Weiwei, he is one of my very favorite artists, but he did this super cool series 
of uh, basically Lego style paintings of the different Zodiac animals. They're oh, okay. they're huge. And Lego didn't want to sponsor him initially. And so he like posted on Instagram and so many people sent him like basically trash bags full of Legos that he still has like a huge part of his studio is just like full of Legos now, which I think is delightful. Um, but I, I also think it does make sense that this year would be a tough year for us because if you look at the Chinese Zodiac wheel, the ox is actually like the opposite of the of the goat when you're looking at it um and since there's 12 signs in the chinese zodiac your the year of like your 30th birthday or 31st if you calculate your birthday using the traditional chinese method where you're one when you're born but it's you're around your 30th is always going to be in opposition to your sign so it does sort of coincide with the approximate time of your saturn return which happens to be around the time you turn 29 and last about two years and, you know, it's like, of course, this is definitely a period of great discomfort for most people. But I think it's like, it's always the thing where growth only comes when things are a little bit challenging. And it's exactly yeah. it's a time of upheaval. I think of, I always think of this like year and like the beginning of our Saturn return, like when you're out at a picnic and you pick up the blanket and you shake it out. Right. That That's what it feels like is happening. But anyway, my weird uh, Chinese Zodiac <laughs> sidetrack. Well, you know, uh, it, it's. Nice that you brought that up, though, because I thought this would be a good topic apart from this episode dropping right at the perfect time. It's because we just covered some of the history and mythology around Imbolc. Um, and to me, I, I feel like they're almost analogous holidays. So in the week leading up to the Lunar New Year, it is customary to give your house a thorough cleaning. Mm. Does that does that sound familiar? Yeah, I just got a Virgo boner thinking about um, thorough house cleanings. <laughs> and all of the traditions and superstitions surrounding this holiday are all about inviting luck and abundance into your life for the coming year and generally getting ready for the year ahead. And it, is it feeling like we've maybe heard some of this before last yeah, week? Yeah, uh, it's like it feels a little bit like deja vu. Um, so one of my favorites is giving away money to the children and unmarried people in your close circle. Uh, they kind of take that loosely. So younger people who are younger than you, people who work for you. Um, so generally it's, you're giving it to the people who are quote unquote beneath you. Um, so, but even that puts a fun spin on that, uh, envelope of $2 bills that I got from my coworker. Right. I say coworker cause she was definitely full-time and I was a student worker, but right. Thanks, so, Jennifer. <laughs> uh, in in my neck of the woods, uh, here here in Austin, where I live, there's a very nice older gentleman who runs a shop that I go to sometimes, and he puts out actually it's a Christmas tree, uh, and he puts red ornaments on it and lottery tickets. Uh, for, uh, he does that for the Lunar New Year for anyone to take that week, uh, and I I just love the that kind of culture clash of the Christmas tree. With the red ornaments and the free lottery tickets, um, and you know, little, you know, it's kind of, kind of fun, kind of. It's just like a, it's yeah. like a personal thing, and I, I always try to go around the Lunar New Year because I'm like, if I'm gonna win the lottery off of a free New Year lottery ticket, like that's that just would make it over the top, you know. I and I feel like that would make him so happy. Like, can you imagine? And. I just love that vision, too, because it feels very much like a, a very physical representation of the thing that I feel like a lot of us do when we're building our witchcraft practices. Yes. 
Yeah, and uh, it's kind of like the magic penny, like the tradition of giving the money away is like yeah. the money you give away will come back to you many yeah. times multiplied. It's almost like it coming back threefold. Yeah, huh. I mean, you know, it's, there's there's a lot of parallels to be had. Um, yeah. So this is also the time that in Chinese and other Asian neighborhoods here stateside, they have the really iconic dragon and lion dance with the parade and the firecrackers and the sparklers and the confetti cannons and all of these things that Westerners have really come to associate with the celebration, like looking at it from the outsider's perspective, the lanterns, you know, the streets all lit up. Um, but there's very deep pagan roots to the traditions of this holiday that are literally thousands of years old. And uh, I'm going to tell a popular legend that was my favorite um, when I was learning about this, and that is the monster Nyan, who feasts on human flesh on New Year's Day. And fortunately for everyone, he fears the color red, which I, I side note here. Isn't that weird for someone who eats raw flesh? It's like, does he just eat in the dark? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, blood <laughs> is red. No, um, clearly not. So uh, loud noises. So it's firecrackers and fire in general. So um, if all of that's happening in the streets, he stays away. Uh, but it also kind of is a nice excuse to have a really like raucous and wild celebration. Uh, uh, yeah, down. There's also a tradition to eat dumplings or sticky rice balls for New Year's, which uh, the, the sticky rice balls I, I had read represent the tightly bound bonds of family and community and how we should stick together. Um, and I just I really thought that was sweet. Also, yeah. uh, it's the biggest travel date in the world is the weeks leading up to and after Lunar New Year. Yeah. I mean, it makes it, sense when you think about the population of that part of the world. Yes. And uh, it's part of it is you go home to your family. If you don't go home to your family any other time of year, this is when this is when yeah. you would go. I love that. That's it's such a nice thing, because I know in in Russian culture, it's kind of similar to where like New Year, the New Year is like the big family holiday, like more mm -hmm. so than like whatever Christmas or winter holiday or Thanksgiving. It's like you go home for the New Year. And I I personally I love that. Yeah. And it's like also good travel advice for anyone out there that is looking to travel to East Asia. Lunar New Year is not the time because most planes, trains, ferries, and even taxi services are fully booked. Yeah. So not the best time. Um, and that's really something to keep in mind. Uh, but it is the Northern Hemisphere. So that is still kind of the dead of winter, which isn't really a huge deal in you know the Southern half of Asia, but um, you know, maybe not the best time to go anyway. Uh, yeah. So the celebration culminates in the Lantern Festival, which is visually stunning. And I've always wanted to go to like a small village for the Lantern Festival. Uh, I know they're so like it. it uh, it's just every time I see it, I'm like, this is majestic as fuck. It really is majestic as fuck. And it really it, it has it's it's so magical yeah it has that sense kind of like certain other you know things like the northern lights where it feels 
both big and magical and also somehow so intimate. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. everyone has to do their part. You know, it's not the city yeah. putting these out. It's all of the people in the individual houses that yeah. are making this happen on such a grand scale, uh, which I just really think is beautiful because there's that community aspect to it as well. Yeah. Um, it's the stuff that always makes me cry. Right. Uh, so <laughs> there's a trick-or-treating type element to this, uh, if you could call it that, um, because a lot of the lanterns have a short riddle written on them, which, if you solve it, earns you a small gift or a prize from the house that has the lantern on it. So. Oh, my God. I want to do that. I should do that for Halloween next year if we're able to trick or treat. It's like you can only get candy if you solve this riddle. I love that. And you yeah. could dress up as a sphinx. Oh, my God. I think that we just figured out my plans for next Halloween anyway. So um, <laughs> but there's a legend about the Lantern Festival that I shit you not involves a fairy being tricky and sneaky. Go what? figure. Um, all those Shocked. thousands of miles away and they still have sneaky little fairies. So what does that tell you? Uh, so the story <laughs> goes, and this is also kind of a fun tie in to your topic because it was the Jade Emperor or UD Aww. who was very angry at a particular village for killing his goose. Um, well, who and could you think, blame him? And you Rude. would think the emperor might have more than one goose. Um, but that must have been his favorite goose. It must have. Um, so the very sneaky fairy, for reasons which are left unclear, other than just wanting to be sneaky and, you know, pull one over on the emperor, warned the people in the village to cover their houses in lanterns. And so the emperor was riding in to burninate the peasants and he <laughs> saw the lights from a distance and he said to himself, it looks like somebody already took care of this. And he turned around and went home, presumably to do emperor-y things like counting his geese or whatever. So um, Trogdor pops up out of the background from burninating the countryside. Yes. And the, <laughs> the thing I really love here is uh, just in general is the idea of this huge multi-day holiday that really covers so much ground that us Westerners would have to put together like our top five holidays into one just to get that kind of scale. Yeah. And it's also interesting to see that even in a culture that was unbothered by western civilization for such a long time still has this big spring cleaning holiday that really parallels in bulk in a lot of ways and i also think it's important just like looking at chinese history from like an even like a, a step even further back uh, as modern pagans uh, because they simultaneously are rocketing into the future but keeping an iron grip on their sacred traditions, even in the face of one of the hugest anti-religious regimes in human history. So, yeah. Uh, and there's also inspiration, I think, to be found in the way that they've kind of grown their own pantheon without too much trouble. I mean, you're, you're allowed to be a Taoist and a Confucian and a Buddhist at the same time. And when something moves in and inspires them, they, they do remain open to it as a culture just as much to this day as they did back then, which I just find very neat. Yeah, that is such a like beautiful perspective. And it's so different than 
what most of like the Western quote unquote Christian world experiences, because like, you know, the, the Christians were really not open to you thinking about multiple things at the same time. But the thing that the (laughs) Christians ran into when they were sending missionaries into China for the very first time was that, you know, the, the, the Chinese people were like, Oh, we like this Jesus guy. We'll worship him too. And they're yeah. like, no, 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 no. You just worship Jesus. And they're like, okay, we'll worship Jesus too. And they were like, no, that. no, 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 no. And they were like, <laughs> okay, we'll worship Jesus too. <laughs> so, I mean, even in like strictly Christian Chinese households, they 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 hold on to the other stuff as well. Um, and yeah, I just, I just think that's super neat. Yeah, it feels very pagan. It so, feels very pagan. It, it is, I mean, Taoism is yeah. sort of the idea that every thing inanimate or animate has a has a spirit in it yeah it's i i i do really enjoy it and it has been interesting like digging in a little bit more and learning a little bit more about you know chinese culture um especially for this episode because it is something i'm interested in and uh, many moons ago i used to work at ucla and one of the women who was on the foundation board that i worked with was um she was a chinese american woman And she did a lot of work to like fund, you know, different courses and like trips and stuff designed to help like bridge the gap between like China and the West Coast. And out here in Los Angeles in particular, there's a lot of focus on like trying to sort of like reach across the ocean and like have good, strong ties, no matter what is happening as far as like the federal government is concerned. And so I have been, I feel like learning more and more just sort of by osmosis since I've been on the West Coast. But it is, it's so nice to dig in because there is, there's just so much there. Like it's such a a long history. Yeah, it's, it really is. I mean, it's like one of the first civilizations to ever happen in in a major way you know it's like you've got like mesopotamia you've got the indus valley you've got chinese people (laughs) like right oh well on that uh, note crassula ovada i i when we when we mentioned doing the lunar new year i feel like jade was kind of the first plant that comes to mind because it is super associated with lunar new year um it's the Crassula ovata is actually the most common variety of jade that you'll see as like a house plant or a garden plant, but it goes by a lot of common names like lucky plant. It's also been called a money plant and a money tree, which, you know, several other types of plants are also called those things. Um, but most people will just call it like common jade. Also, and so, uh, a fun side note here, the tea house I worked at had several very beautiful jade plants, which were planted in teapots. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll get into why that's very auspicious. Um, But interestingly enough, even though it does have such strong associations with like Lunar New Year and Chinese lore, like even when you're researching, like when you go to like Beijing's like travel page, they talk about Mm -hmm. jade, but it's not native to Asia. Um, It's actually it's a succulent plant and it's native to the warmer areas of southern Africa. Um, but by now you can find them growing all over the world. Like there are a ton of them outdoors here in my neighborhood. Los Angeles is covered in them. You know, again, it's like, you probably know someone with one or, you know, I even had in my notes here and you brought it up. It's like, you've walked by a Chinese restaurant or a tea shop with a giant one in the window. Um, they're, they're kind of everywhere to the point 
where some people I realize just kind of overlook them and are a little bit plant blind to them. Um, so just a, a bit of a reminder in case you don't actually know what these look like. They, they're known for having this really beautiful, like plump green foliage. It's like oval shaped, you know, that's where the ovata comes from. And then as they sort of mature and grow, their stems get like brown and woody. And so they, they kind of develop almost like a tree like appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of a cool thing is when they're a little bit more mature and you can see it on some of the ones around my neighborhood, they actually get these like really beautiful crystals that form on the stems. And it's from um, the plant is like pushing salts out. But it creates this like really beautiful look where you've got these giant like tree like jade plants with these like crystals on the stems and then they get their beautiful white flowers. They're just I love them. I'm I'm pretty obsessed. And they they do get big. So it's like if you're buying one and it's tiny, it just be ready that it it might keep growing. So, you know, and they then, can and get they, and they will last for a very long time as well. This is not going to yeah. be your plant that dies next year yeah they a lot of times these plants are even passed down from like generation to generation like they're a generational plant um and they can get almost up to three feet tall indoors and of course even bigger outdoors and there are a few different varieties including some that are more compact if you maybe don't want a three foot tall jade plant in your house um hummel sunset is a really cool one it's got some like beautiful like yellow and red tipped leaves there's tricolor which actually has variegated leaves with white and cream and i know that like white variegation is the like hot guy in town in the plant world right now um and then this is the one i have it's et's fingers and they actually like the leaves are kind of tube shaped and they have red tips like little so so i'm imagining almost like the pine tree version of the jade tree like pointier kind of they they do look like tubes though so to me they kind of look almost like they belong on the bottom of a, of the sea like kind oh. of like anemone looking yeah. okay yeah I, i'm picturing it now yeah no they're they're really cool i love them and i that's the one i have and they're they're big and they're happy um so they are just Forewarning you all, they're mildly poisonous to to pets. So just be careful if you have fur babies around like Nick's cat and like my cat too, who just love munching on anything green. You're going to need to keep these out of reach. Um, They're not munching, just munching on anything though. Like I just have to say, Oliver does not only go for plants, it's also grocery bags. (laughs) And uh, yeah, (laughs) he's a little little more extreme than Samson. He's pretty. He is pretty. Samson just <laughs> eats. I Samson comes out sometimes on the back porch with me in the morning when I'm doing like my personal tarot pool and journaling and stuff. And this morning he had to go inside because he kept trying to go out and eat the grass. And I was like, dude, I can't like, I don't want to clean up grass puke. Anyway, um, they're not like kill your pet immediately poisonous, but they will make them really sick. And so it's just not, not worth the risk. And if you're growing it in your house, you do need to put it in a spot that gets at least six hours of sunlight. I mean, the you can always tell when they're getting a good amount of sun because the leaves get this like really pretty like kind of red orange around the edges of the leaves, kind of like aloe, you know. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, when, like the little the little spiky bits will turn. Yeah, so like aloe does that thing where it gets like you know some of the red coloring on it, and you know this is exactly the same way. Uh, like if you're one of those people. <laughs> 
that only has a north facing window. First of all, yeah. I'm very, very sorry, but you're going to have to get a grow light for these because these are plants that are like super intolerant of really low lighting. Like they'll etiolate really bad and they'll get super gangly and they'll just eventually succumb to root rot. Probably um, etiolating. I just want to, I realize I should say is like when you see succulents in particular and they start sort of like reaching towards the light and they get that really long stem without a bunch of leaves, that's called etiolation. And that's because they're not getting enough light. So and that's um all of my plants, which actually I have to I have to send you a picture later because my calancho is blooming. Oh my um, god. And it is very sad looking because Aww. she is stretched to the limit. Yeah, she's probably stress blooming, which yeah. some plants do. So yeah, well, we should take care. We should figure out how to love on your calancho. Um anyway, all that to say, south-facing windows are really the place to be with these um you know i have a big pot that has some of them in it on my front porch and they're they're really happy and my porch faces southeast so you know you do need to be mindful of these and there are so many really cute grow lights on amazon and they've even gotten to the point where there are some good like bulbs that you can just change out in a regular lamp to use as a grow light so you know it's not like you're out of luck if you don't have, you know, good window space, I have plenty of stuff under a grow light downstairs. No shame. Um, so as you might also guess, being from Southern Africa, uh, they don't tolerate freezes. So, Weird. you know, I know shocking that on the Southern coast of the, I think it's the Southern East, the Southeast coast of, of Africa, I think is where they're primarily found. Uh, they don't get a lot of like, you know, snowy winters. So, like, um, Madagascar and Zimbabwe and all those places don't have snowy winters? They don't. I'll, I know. I'll have to cancel my ski vacation. I know. I'm sorry to ruin everything, but that's what Virgos do. Um, so, it is a succulent, which means it needs really, 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 really well-draining soil. So, what I would suggest is starting with a cactus and succulent mix and then amending it with even more, like, perlite or pumice, something to just like make sure you're keeping a lot of air circulation throughout the soil. Because even, you know, I, we talk a lot about how I think the miracle Grow cactus and succulent mix is like a really great, most basic potting mix that you can use with most of your houseplants, but it still is not really well draining enough for succulents. Like it's, it's not, you really do need to add some extra stuff to it. Uh, I would also suggest planting these in uh, terracotta because terracotta also helps with like, you know, making sure there's a lot of air throughout the roots. It also dries out a little bit faster. And these are one of those plants where like the most common way to kill them is overwatering them. And when this, uh, you know, in spring and summer, you're still only going to water when the top half of the soil is dry. This isn't like your Monstera where you just need up to like the second knuckle dry. Like this is like the top half of the pot needs to be dry. And then in the winter, water even less. Like if you're someone like me who tends to love your plants to death and overwater, this is like a good learning plant for you because it will kill it dead. And the reality is with most houseplants, but especially with succulents, it's a lot easier to revive a plant if you've underwatered it than to revive a plant that has, you know, root rot. Um, and, you know, again, it's like 
potting them up in the right type of mix and putting them in the right type of pot and making sure they get a lot of sunlight. Those are all the best ways to like set yourself up for success and avoiding root rot, which is like the big plant killer. I've definitely lost plants to root rot. Um, so you also don't want to repot it until literally there are roots peeking out of the drainage hole. Uh, like most succulents, it is better to let them get a little bit pot bound. And that's because they, the problem with planting pots or planting your, you know, plants up in pots that are too big is that there's all of this extra soil outside of the root ball, right? And because that soil isn't actually touching the roots, the water that gets into it isn't getting used. And so it just kind of sits there and it's stagnant and it's like a perfect place to breed things like the bacteria that causes root rot or a shit ton of fungus gnats. And that's it. When you think about it like that, logically, I think it really helps just to understand why you want to be so careful about not overpotting, but in particular with things like succulents, because, you know, they just, they don't do well with too much water. Uh, the good thing about these though, in the event that you're somebody who's trying and you fuck up a little bit and you think it's dying, they propagate really easy uh, from tip cuttings. That's the easiest way to do it. So you're going to look at the top of your plant and you're going to like take a small piece of stem that has a few petals attached. And then you're going to let the cutting dry for a few days and then, you know, just pot it up into a good well-draining mix. And it's a good for, you know, I, number one, I always suggest taking cuttings. If there's a plant that you super love, it's kind of an insurance policy for yourself. Uh, you can also share it with your friends, but you know, again, even the most seasoned plant owners, like shit happens and sometimes a plant dies and sometimes it's something you can't even control. So, you know, do yourself a favor, do a little bit of propagation. And it's also a nice way to like share your plants with your friends. Um, there, yeah, and these, if your plant ends up being okay, you, you have a gift yeah, for the next exactly. unexpected birthday that comes along. Exactly. Like I love my Monstera adansonii is probably one of my favorite plants. Um, her name is Nadja. And I have taken like a few rounds of cuttings from her just because, you know, she is like one of my favorite plants. I would be heartbroken if anything ever happened to her. I have gifted one of the sets of cuttings, but I've also potted up some. So it's like, you know, you've got a good, you, you never have to like buy more plants once you get to a certain point, if you don't want to, because you can just make more from what you have. Um, the great news about these, which is not the case with a lot of house plants, um, they're actually not really huge, like pest magnets. You are going to want to keep an eye out for mealybugs. Like they're those like little white fuzzy bastards. If you find them, First and foremost, anytime you find a, a pest on anything, get it away from your other plants. You and know, then it's funny. It's it's nice that we've kind of gone through this pandemic because um, people understand now. It's like um, social socially distance your plants. How about that? Yes, yeah, socially distance. Um, mealybugs. I mean, like a lot of like a lot of different pests. Uh, the first thing I would always recommend is like taking them either to like a porch with a water hose or into your shower and blasting them off with water because that's a really good way to sort of get the bulk of them out. And then uh, a very like kind of meanly satisfying way to deal with the rest of the little ones as they come up, just get like a cotton swab dipped in alcohol and you can kill them individually. And um, 
if anybody's ever had a plant that's gotten pests before, nothing feels better than fucking killing them. So, oh my gosh. You know, uh, if your plant please, is... Ha- please do not come after us, PETA. Oh my God. If PETA wants to come at me for kill- for killing mealybugs, they're going to have to kill like almost all of Reddit, all of plant Reddit. So I feel like we're low on that list. <laughs> um, if your plant is happy and thriving, though, they do throw off these like pretty little white flowers and to get them to bloom they do have to be pot bound so like seriously leave them alone most plants will not bloom unless they're a little pot bound because when they are in a pot that's a little too big what they're doing as the plant is focusing energy on developing roots to fill out that space so they're not going to be using energy to bloom so you know you kind of got to like leave them be And when they flower, jade plants are said to reflect well on the owner and symbolize great friendship, luck, and prosperity. So I love them. Um, And there's so much good lore around these plants. So in Asia, in general, these plants are considered a good luck charm, and they're believed to activate financial energies. And I say in Asia because jade has kind of proliferated throughout Asia. It's not just in China. It's kind of across, across, you know, this giant part of the continent um and which is, which is uh realistically a very good portion of the landmass of the world oh yeah 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 no jade is definitely <laughs> like everywhere um oh no but no, no, it, no i mean i mean just like asia itself you know oh, yeah, it's no, like it's, it's like it's, it's a pretty good percentage of just all of the land in the world because american maps do that thing where they make north um, america look huge and they make Africa look tiny and they make Asia look like the same size as Europe. And that's definitely not the case, y'all. Oh, Just yeah. No, I was going to say, <laughs> I was about to say, you got to like do like a little bit of a Wikipedia on like the weird fucked up way that we've created maps. Ew. Um, but a jade in your house or your office is considered auspicious because the vibrant green leaves are symbolic of growth and renewal. And they actually uh, resemble, you know, like jade coins or stones, which are other symbols of like wealth and prosperity. And this is a really traditional gift for, you know, somebody who's like opening a new business or as a building owner that's opening a new building. So it totally makes sense that you would have them in your tea shop. Um, and they're also great housewarming gifts because they're, you know, they're said to really encourage overall prosperity and wealth. So, you know, if you need a good planty housewarming gift, and honestly, they're also not crazy expensive. So I feel like it's got a really great impact for not a lot of money, which for most people, myself included, I think is always a good find. And like a like a be- a better vibe than like the ten dollar orchid from Whole Foods or whatever because yeah, those okay. will die. Please stop giving people that aren't plant people orchids. Number one, ugh, that's even mean. Plant pe- even plant people can't keep orchids alive sometimes. Yeah, orchids are a very specific type of plant, and I just I have I have killed orchids before when I was not even a real plant person. Like many moons ago, someone gifted me a beautiful orchid. And it like haunts me to this day that I let it die because it was gorgeous. So just fucking don't, man. Um, on on a different note related to jade. So I wanted to talk a little bit about feng shui. And jade plants are actually really popular plants for indoor design with feng shui. Um, and I do say feng shui. I have done a lot of research and there's not one consensus on how it's pronounced. And you have to remember, like just in China alone, 
the dialects can be so different that people in different parts of China, when they're speaking, wouldn't be able to understand each other. I mean, when they write, they could. But all that to say, this is how I pronounce it. And that is the general consensus I've read on the internet is that there's not really a right way, quote unquote, to say it. But generally speaking, in feng shui, what you're looking for are plants with like round, heart-shaped or oval leaves that are like thick and succulent, you know, just like the jade plant. Um, general in feng shui no-nos are things like climbing plants, spiky plants, or things that flower. Um, feng shui is about kind of, it's all about like the movement of chi and energy throughout the house or, you know, even in your outdoor spaces. And you can kind of like see that when you think about the types of plants that are very encouraged. Uh, they also don't, they, they say in feng shui, you shouldn't have plants in your bedroom. So clearly I am not all in on it. Um, but there are some really interesting things that kind of like, you know, mirror other traditions. So uh, jade plants in this practice, though, like when you're thinking about in the feng shui sense, they're said to give off nourishing chi. And a great place for them in your home is the southeast corner, because this is the bagua area of the home that's associated with wealth and abundance. Um, and I do want to point out that like feng shui has been banned in mainland China for a long time now. Um, one of the reasons is because there's a big prevalence of like scammers <laughs> that are associated with like the feng shui uh, sort of industry. But classical feng shui is still considered super important in a lot of parts of modern Chinese culture, especially in places like Hong Kong and Taiwan and Malaysia. And if you're interested in learning more about feng shui, uh, Lillian Tu is this like really amazing prolific author that's written like, I think like 30 books on it. Uh, she graduated with an MBA from Harvard in 1976. Um, and she actually became the first woman in Malaysia to head a publicly listed company. And in 1982, she was actually the first woman in Asia to be appointed the CEO of a bank. So wow. she's a well, badass. It worked for her. Well, yeah. And then she retired from corporate, the corporate world and like dove into this like feng shui practice and like has basically like an entire fucking like a business. It's like an empire of feng shui. She has like big talks that she does every year and like there's like a business board it's this whole thing but she's a really great see, see i like resource. to think i you know it's like the backstory i'm like coming up with in my head though is that she was so good at feng shui she became this huge boss bitch and then made it her career it's very possible because she is you know she did grow up in malaysia and feng shui is still very important in malaysia and it's interesting like you can look at the way some towns were built uh in china you know hundreds and thousands of years ago and they very much take the feng shui practices into account i think it's something like a four thousand year old practice mm -mm. so you know it is it's a very interesting thing i have done a little bit of sort of like touching on feng shui it's not uh something i can boil down at it by any stretch i, I, I feel this like podcast. that's kind of like a thing <laughs> in this whole episode is like it's the Lunar New Year. We would like to talk about these things, but respectfully, we're we we just do not have the time to really no. like. We could do a whole series about it. Uh, we but could. I think, I think for both of us, you know, like I really like Guanyin in my practice. Uh, but this this is something that I know other witches that I am familiar with get into. Uh, yeah. Not my personal flavor. 
but some no. people just really feel called to this kind of stuff. And so they do. And and I, that's why I did want to like also plug Lillian too, because I think um, in particular, so like Nixon actually on a visit to China learned about feng shui and like kind of brought over back to the US some of these like ideas about it. And it has become really like, there's a really Western practice of feng shui as well. And the reason I wanted to, again, plug Lillian too, is because I do think, especially as like witches who understand the interconnectedness of everything, I think it's important for us to like go to the source for things like this. Like we don't need to make some like rich West Coast white lady richer by buying her book about feng shui when you could buy a book by a woman who grew up in Malaysia uh, and like grew up in the part of the world where classical feng shui is like still a very important part of everyday life. So anyway, back to Jade. They're also, of course, heavily associated with Lunar New Year because they are really all about like drawing in prosperity and growing your wealth. And so I wanted to put together a ritual that's inspired by some Lunar New Year traditions and also incorporating some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast and some of the things in my practice. So the first thing you're going to want to do is find a place in the southeast part of your home where you can set up a small altar space. Um, if it's not permanent, that's fine. Like if it's the southeast corner of my house is at the end of my stairwell. I can't leave oh, something oh, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah I'm uh, yeah. I'm I, I know where that's at. Yeah. Yeah. So it, not if the best you do place. Have, no, but if you do have a place where you can leave something up permanently, bonus points. But if not, just, you know, setting up something temporarily so you can do this uh, so you can do this ritual is fine so the things you're going to need to gather is a green candle not one in a votive we're going to be dressing the candle um uh, something to represent money so either an investment certificate a blank check a couple of dollar bills or you know a two dollar bill would be very appropriate for lunar new year um a small jade plant lemongrass oil dried calendula or rosemary whichever you have on hand and pyrite so first what you're going to want to do is of course before you do any ritual do whatever grounding and centering you do you know call the corners cast a circle whatever you do for your practice and then you're going to take a few drops of lemongrass oil and you're going to sort of rub it all over the candle the way i do this when i'm dressing my candles is i usually just get like a small piece of parchment paper on my altar And I'll put like the drops of the oil on the parchment paper and kind of roll the candle back and forth in it and then put the dried herbs on that parchment paper and again, sort of roll your candle in it. That way you can get it sort of all over um, and you don't get a bunch of oil on your altar because parchment paper won't let it soak through. Um, So after you do that, you're going to want to set your candle up next to your pyrite. So on either like a little candle stand, if you don't have one of those things that you can like stick your candle in if you don't have anything of that nature you can also do a small bowl with salt in it to hold the candle up throughout the spell and then you're going to want the pyrite next to it and whatever thing you're using that represents money so you're going to light the candle and as the candle burns you want to focus all of your energy on attracting wealth and whatever that means to you you know this can be very literally for money but it can also be like If you have investments, like maybe letting your investments grow, if you want to buy a house, you know, it's like growing your bank account to be able to get a house, whatever type of wealth you're interested in attracting, really focus your intention on that. And then when it has totally burned down, the money and the object 
the money object, you know, whether it's like your check or your $2 bill is going to be really infused with your intention. So you're going to take that and you're going to set it under the jade plant and then take the piece of pyrite that's also infused with your intention and put it in the pot at the base of the plant. So if your southeast corner has great windows and you can leave the plant there, great. If not, take your plant, you know, with your your little like dollar bill or whatever and put it somewhere where it gets plenty of sun. And then anytime you care for it throughout the year, you can take that time to sort of refocus on drawing money or wealth in. And that way, kind of like Nick's spell for self-love, it is a long-term spell. And the idea is that you wouldn't replace the money piece here until next Lunar New Year. I I love that. Like a little bit of a a little bit of fusion between yeah. like our our paganism and these um sort of, you know, Asian traditions is it's a nice fusion. Yeah, I and this is how, you know, personally, I often work with my practice. You know, it's like I love learning about other cultures, and I think the big thing and we've kind of talked about it in cultural appropriation is like I would never sell a spell like this that wasn't completely drawn from my culture. I think it's real shitty. And that is definitely cultural appropriation to make money on it. But in my opinion, and as far as I've been able to discern, if you're just utilizing inspiration in your personal practice, I don't see that there's a problem with that. Yeah. And, you know, I think like I was saying in, in my vibe, you know, that really is like part of the spirit of the Chinese culture is like, being inspired by something and taking it into your personal practice is something that they have been doing for centuries. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, channel some of that energy, do something, yeah. do something a little different. It's, it's good. It's good to do new things. Yeah. And it only makes your practice better. Like when you're not doing the same type of ritual, you know, it's, I think it's really good for your magic to have your energies working in different ways. Yeah. So I think to round out this Lunar New Year episode, I wanted to profile one of my favorite deities. I'm using air quotations, but you can't see it. Uh, Guanyin. So Guanyin is another name for the for the Bodhisattva. I'm going to butcher this. Avalokitsvara. Who? It, I thought that sounded great as far as it's spelled. I, I did look it up on YouTube. <laughs> But it's it's uh it's a it's a quite a mouthful. But uh, yeah. that is someone who is believed to have achieved the Buddha state of enlightenment, but who has foregone the state of nirvana that comes with that, and instead chosen to take care of all of God's children. So not exactly a goddess per se. I, I would say this to me feels more like a sainthood. But that yeah. even that is kind of like putting a Western label on something that is decidedly not Western. Um, but the Jesuit missionaries gave her the moniker Goddess of Mercy. And she's one of the most widely regarded figures in the Buddhist world in general. Uh, in fact, though, she wasn't a goddess at all to begin with. Uh, the original figure that was brought to China from India around the first century. The, the very first one wow. um, was always depicted with male characteristics or with the characteristics of both as the uh, Bodhisattva was able to change form in order to best relieve suffering uh, from like person to person. Um, I so love they would that. T- so they would visit you in the form that 
that works best for you. Yeah, I was going to say that's like that's such a beautiful way to think about gender. And it's so refreshingly not the weird Western gender binary. Right. Um, But so her name literally translates to something like and there's a few little variations on this. uh, The one who hears the sounds of human suffering. And so what kind of what that means, though, practically, is that she would be the one who would hear your prayers and intervene on your behalf to alleviate your suffering. Um, So this, of course, led to the very heavy handed comparisons to the Virgin Mary from those missionaries who were experiencing this culture for the first time. Uh, And so uh, an interesting thing as well is that the shift to being like a full-time goddess is actually said to have happened in China around the 12th century. So you've got 11 centuries of maybe Guanyin is a dude, maybe Guanyin is sometimes a dude and sometimes a lady, maybe Guanyin can be anything they want to be. Uh, but after that, the depictions are strictly female. Uh, so and at Bummer. some point in those 11 centuries, uh, she also became a goddess, which you frequently will see, especially in little shrines and things, um, with the multitude of extra arms, which is not to be confused with the Hindu goddess Durga, who is a warrior goddess, and that it, that's a whole separate thing. Um, so when we're talking about like Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean, Japanese, when you see a goddess with a lot of arms, that is Guanyin. And uh, this is actually because it is her solemn vow to save every sentient soul from the cycle of reincarnation through the power of enlightenment. And uh, as a natural result, she was uh, stretched quite thin. Uh, a lot of work <laughs> to do. And so she needs the extra hands and faces sometimes. So sometimes she's she's got extra faces looking in all the different directions because she's got work to do, honey. Yeah, I was about to say, that's a it's no small task. Yeah, she's busy. Okay. And so this depiction also represents the belief that the Bodhisattva could take any human form at will in order to guide people to become enlightened. Uh, she's also frequently depicted with her children or sidekicks, depending on kind of how you view it, who were uh, the daughter of the Dragon King. Ooh. Who became her disciple after bringing her a gift from her father. Uh, her father, of course, being the fucking Dragon King. <laughs> and uh, because actually, Guan Yin is also associated heavily with um, sailors. So that was something that came along at some point. And as part of that, the Dragon King lives in the sea. She saved the Dragon King's son. He sent his daughter with the um, the ever shining pearl or like the, the the brightest jewel in the world, depending on how you see it. And Guan Yin, and she was so in awe of Guan Yin's enlightenment that she immediately wanted to become a disciple. And Guan Yin was like, okay, but you have to be the new owner of this jewel. Uh, very selfless in that way. Um, and then yeah. the other the other child that's that's pictured with Guan Yin um, is a is a crippled boy who found an island that Guan Yin was said to be at. 
uh, and Guanyin and wanted to become a devotee and become enlightened by learning from Guanyin. And so, so this is a funny story, actually. So Guanyin summoned uh, imaginary pirates that were coming, okay. like climbing up a cliff to attack her. And this, um, this crippled boy. Um, and that's that's the word they use in the legend. It's like kind of sticking in my throat. But um, the crippled boy um, is like crawling up the cliff trying to save Guanyin from these pirates. And so that's how she knew that he was really devoted to becoming enlightened. Um, wow. And so so like a lot of times you'll see her kind of pictured with with the, and they're they're children. So like a son and a daughter or like her her sidekicks and they you know travel travel the world enlightening everyone um but my favorite myth about guanyin out of all of them which also ties into my personal association between the lunar new year and tea season and that's the story of tea guanyin oolong uh and so the story goes that in uh fujian there was an abandoned and degraded temple that housed an old iron statue of Guanyin. And every day, a poor farmer called Wei would pass on his way to the tea fields and remark on the very shabby conditions. And he said, something really must be done about this. It's very disrespectful to allow this to happen. But a poor farmer like Wei couldn't afford to fix the temple himself. So... He brought in a broom and some incense from home and just gave the temple a good spring cleaning because in his own words, it's it's the least I could do. Um, so he did this twice a month for very many months. And eventually, Guanyin came to Wei in a dream, telling him that there was a cave behind the temple that contained a great treasure that could be his if he shared it with others. So. What do you do? You go to the cave because Guanyin came to you in a dream. The cave is there. And in the cave is a single tea shoot, which he planted in his field and nurtured very carefully to maturity, only to find that it made very exceptional tea. And so, of course, with his agreement, he shared it with all of his neighbors, his family, his friends, and the world, really. And Tiguanyin, the Iron Goddess wow. of Mercy, was born. Uh, and not only is this story great, but the tea is delicious, and you can still get it. And, uh, you know, it is almost, I mean, Lunar New Year is this week, and that means tea season's coming up. So maybe get some Tiguanyin. It is very good when you get it fresh. Um, so check it out. Um, so I had some fun facts here, though, at the end, because I really, you know, was like looking everywhere to find interesting stuff about Guanyin. And there's so much. But um, so in Korea, they have a pilgrimage devoted to Guanyin, which goes to 33 different temples. Um, and it's kind of like the Camino del Santiago in Spain, where you, you have to complete the whole thing and, uh, you know, through that kind of shed your your sins along the way. Um, every culture that reveres Guanyin uh, has a different mountain, which is said to be her spiritual home. Uh, and yeah, she does have a very strong association with the Virgin Mary because the missionaries thought that someone with that energy and that kind of following 
could not be anyone but the Holy Mother herself. So I Guan love Yen. her. I love her too. And so I also think like me personally, I have this like unbreakable connection between like the idea of Guan Yen and the idea of tea. And, you know, I feel like sometimes we want to save everyone as well. And we don't take time for ourselves. And one very nice, very simple thing that you can do for yourself every day is have and enjoy a cup of tea. Because yes, Ugh. you are trying to save everyone. You are trying to save the world. But you can stop and enjoy a cup of tea. So oh, I love it. That's actually my morning ritual is I sit out on my back porch with a cup of tea and I pull my tarot card for the day and I journal. And honestly, like, I cannot recommend that enough. <laughs> it's like, no matter how much I have on my plate for the rest of the day, I like make myself take that time. And it makes me a better person, I think, than I would be otherwise. So I, I you know, and it's, I, I think we all we all need that, like, because we all, especially people who are into the craft, because we have this like healing energy that we want to share mm -hmm. with the world. And we can, but you cannot pour from an empty cup. It's a very yep. important thing. Um, also a bit of a tea pun. Yeah. So right. Well, and I think it's important to just like, it's a good reminder that uh, this is a practice. And you know, if, if you're a practicing witch, you do need some type of discipline, even if, I mean, I definitely don't think everybody should be, you know, doing spells every day or anything like that. But even just like the little discipline of like making time for yourself at least once a day, just to like recenter. That's really, really, really important. I mean, I think it's especially important for witches, but it's it's really important for everybody. But I, I can't recommend that enough. Like, just do yourself a favor take five minutes, have a cup of tea, and don't check your phone. Yeah, and you you don't have a thousand arms, so. No, we only have two at most, at most. So, well, that we're getting close to the end, so now it's time for the tarot scope. Um, so I was talking to Nick about it today. Usually we do a random number generator to pick the, you know, to pick the sign that we're talking to, but I woke up and was just like, had Taurus on the mind. It felt like everything in the universe was like, this is a message for Taurus. So for the Taurus babies, I drew the reversed seven of wands for you. And I'm going to get into what that means in just a minute. But first, I wanted to take a beat to kind of give a bit of an overview of tarot so you can start working through your own journey with the tarot deck, because I know it can feel so overwhelming if you're new to tarot to try and figure out like, how am I going to memorize what every single card means? And there's a few different ways you can think about things. So first, we've got the major arcana, right? That's the fool through the world. And that represents like the big arc of your life. And those are major themes that are going to basically exist throughout your time here on the mortal coil. And then the minor arcana are more about sort of the day to day or like short term themes in your life. And so there are a lot of cards in the minor arcana. But one of the best ways to sort of get off book is to think about number one, figure out what the suits are, what they represent, and then what the numbers or, you know, whatever the term is for the royalty, I don't know what the face cards, essentially figure out the themes of each of those. And then that kind of helps you understand, like, 
what the seven looks like across the cards. So for example, for this one, the wands and tarot are associated with the fire element. And they're really about like your passions, you know, like what gets you up in the morning, your willpower, the driving life force, uh, your creativity, all of the things that really basically are the impetus behind you existing in this world. Like if you want to think about like the fire in your belly. And so then we'll also talk about sevens and tarot. So if you want to level up, you know, emotionally, professionally, spiritually, you have to kind of overcome some inner turmoil, right? And sort of like what I was talking about with Nick with like, thinking about picking up a picnic blanket and shaking it out. You know, the sevens represent the shakeups and like the adjustments that you have to go through to get to that next level. And they can be uncomfortable, but they're really, really important to growing. So with reversed cards, I do read with reversed cards. And that's like when you draw the card upside down and not everyone does this and that's totally okay. But in my practice, I do read that way. And if you're new to tarot, I think it's also fine to skip over reading reversals for a while until you're more comfortable with all of the cards. But to me, tarot cards really do represent sort of like themes and energies. And when I see a reverse card, I think of it as either being like an internalized energy. For example, if you want to think about like the Empress card, right? It's like the Empress card can be about putting out nurturing and like love into the world internalized. It could also be like, you know, you need to take care of your own internal Empress energy. Um, They can also be like an energy block or something that you need to sort of like overcome. And I think that reading the reversals kind of help you see where there are imbalances or opportunities. So I, I do think it's really important for a lot of reasons to not think of any tarot card or a draw as quote unquote bad, because it it is a tool, you know, it's a tool for growth. And even if something is hard, you do have the power to take that difficulty and turn it into something better. And I think that we have a one up on non-magical people because we do a lot of thinking about the obstacles that are coming ahead. And that helps us be really well prepared. And you can do things like spellcraft, additional meditation, just to sort of help you move through these with a little bit more of like, I I like to think of, you know, my Pisces moon is kind of my water energy, like kind of going with the flow. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to try and find that. So all of that leads up to the seven of wands reversed. So to me, this card really says that, you know, Taurus babies, you might be feeling overwhelmed or exhausted. Maybe you've overcommitted yourself and you know, all the responsibilities and pressures are starting to feel a bit like crushing. You know, you're kind of like, you can't see the forest because you're like lost in the trees. And this card is really an affirmation that it's okay to just like focus on one or two things. You know, like Ron Swanson says, like you shouldn't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. And, you know, a footnote here is like, This card can also really signal that you are worrying about what other people are going to think of you if you do choose to like focus in, maybe drop a few of those additional commitments to really focus your energies. And this is also a reminder that it, number one, if they do judge you for that, it doesn't fucking matter. But the reality is, and this is something I have to remind myself of all the time, is that most people are very likely too busy with their own lives to actually care too much 
if you sort of like take a step back from some stuff. So right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like yeah. you think that you. I mean, and and it's like not even to be mean. It's like you think that you are the main character, even when it comes to like other people's stories. But yeah. like actually, it's we're not. It's, it's okay <laughs> to accept that you're not. I think that it's liberating to yes. remember that you're not as someone who has like intense anxiety about what people think about me. Um, but yeah, I think that this is, I just, I, I was thinking about maybe doing a little bit of this with some of the tarot scopes because I realized that some of our listeners might not be, you know, super into the tarot or, you know, maybe are interested in starting a journey. And I know for me, at least it was like, holy fuck overwhelming when I tried mm -hmm. to start. And so I think that, you know, thinking about some of these like broader strokes are a good way to help you get like, quote unquote, like off book for tarot. Yeah, because yeah, if, yeah. if every time you draw, you have to look something up, it really hinders your ability to like use your own intuition to also understand what the cards mean in that moment. Yes. And like I, I, as much as we would all like to think that the like the artwork and the writer weight is going to give you little clues to what the individual cards mean it's that's not even the case in that which is the most symbolic one i can think of like yeah and plenty of people i think myself included are moving away from explicitly rider weight to other decks just because like there's some real icky like super gendered stuff in the rider weight and like the hierarchical stuff is like mm. a little gross mm -hmm. um and there are some really, really cool decks, you know, that don't really have representations of gender. And like most of my deck is it's almost exclusively animals, yeah, which my, I really my, enjoy. My favorite deck is uh, dragons. And but then I also have the Marseille deck, which doesn't have any people in it except for the uh, the uh, the royal, the royal people, the the king, the queen, the knight, the page. Yeah, um, I love that. So anyway, if you listen to this episode and you're like, Shannon, this is too fucking much. We all know about tarot. We're not interested. Just give us the message. Yeah, just, yeah, just Let sh me know. Shoot, shoot us an email. Uh, can I, you know, so kind of coming to the end of this episode and we can totally cut this out, but can I do just the tiniest little rant? Yeah. Rant okay. away. Okay. So I just really, so I think a lot of people listening will relate to this. Um, because I do like to go out into nature. I have a very lovely spot. I sent you a picture of it. Of uh, I call it the little fairy pond. Because the water just bubbles right out on the ground under this cliff. And there's like ferns that hang down. This is oh, a very, yeah. very small situation. Big fey uh, energy. Huge fey energy. And um, I, you know, it's almost like a follow-up to my thing about the tide pools. But I was out there... I go out there after I do my therapy on Thursdays and it's really just this beautiful, charming little spot in the green belt. And don't let your dog swim in the natural spring like that. Like there's salamanders and frogs and all kinds of stuff that like use that tiny little pond as a home. Yeah. Take it's not, your it's, dog. It's not the dog. It's not the pond at the dog park. It's not the lake. It's not even like a flowing creek. It's like a tiny little thing. Yeah. There are a lot of places to take your dog, especially in Austin. It's like there I am a fucking dog person, but some boundaries are important. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just like I, 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 I was like, you know, I, I have such a limited platform just as a human person, but I'm like, can we not? It's like I'm really trying to enjoy nature, and this like one little unspoiled place, and you're letting your dog swim in it, <laughs> and uh, yeah. stop that. I mean, I, oh God, sorry, I just like bumped the shit out of my knee um i love my dog there are some places that she just doesn't need to go with me and that's okay like that's also the creek that starts there continues flowing until it joins a much larger creek which has a concrete embankment which is a very fine place to take a dog and let them have some water time yeah it's like it's just like small little spaces it's like other creatures need spaces too. it's like it's, there's a delicate balance you know yeah and i don't know it just really upset me and i was like yeah. i'm gonna rant about this on the podcast because someone needs to hear this no i get it and it's it's so funny to me because like i am a dog owner but i can't imagine doing that like i was flipping the couch cushions on my outdoor couch and i have a lizard that lives on the back porch like i he i didn't buy him I, he just has always lived on this back porch for like most of the last year. And he was totally on the side of one of the cushions. So he and I had to do a bit of a little dance so I could have him like move around the cushion as I was flipping it. And I'm just like, that's how I respond to other creatures. I run across not letting Willow jump on them. So, yeah, but you know, it's like, there's certain things that are just like too delicate for your dog to like deal with. And yeah. uh, that's, that's just one of those situations where I'm like, I love dogs and I love to watch it. You know, I think it's great to see an animal having fun, but I'm like, there's like barely anywhere in town where like actual salamanders and stuff live, which salamanders are quickly becoming endangered. Like most yep. of the species. Yeah. And you're just letting your dog clomp around. Yeah. Rude. Like, respect nature, people. Like, we're witches. I shouldn't have to say it to you, but re- respect nature, please. Yeah. Your dog doesn't know better, but you do. Um, so, but, do better. Oh, okay, rant over. Closing the book on that. Um, so, <laughs> if someone wants to send us an email defending letting your dog um, ruin things for other people, um, or, you know, send us a bag of rubies, Invitations to Atlantis. Invitations to Atlantis, yes. Invitations to come stay with you and your family during Lunar New Year celebrations at some point in the future. Um, Which we would love. Um, We would be so open when we're able to travel again. Any and all of that. So uh, what is it? It's at onesandfronspod at gmail.com. At onesandfronspod on Instagram. Look us up. Give us a follow. Uh, We'd love it if you gave us some stars. Five five stars five is ideal and if you can't give us stars because i know you can't rate the podcast and leave you know reviews on every app please download it you can delete it once you listen but downloading it really does it means a lot so we would really appreciate it so so um i guess to all of the witches we say blessed be bitches blessed be bitches <laughs> goodbye we love you goodbye <laughs> Val-
Valentine's Day was invented by Scorpios as a way to try and create more Scorpios. 